You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. We are transitioning this morning from a sermon series uh, that we just wrapped up last week that we called Redeemer. Uh, That was a sermon series where we walked through various passages within the Gospels over the last about three months so that we might cast our eyes on Jesus. And as we see him again and again and again interacting with humanity, we would get a sense of exactly who he is. We'd get a sense of the way that he deals with us. We'd get a sense that as we live our lives, what we would expect from Jesus, our Savior. And now next week, we're entering into a new sermon series on prayer and the gift that it is and what it looks like for us to become a people of prayer. But today, we find ourselves, as C.S. Lewis might call it, in the land in between the woods. Uh, we, we, we find ourselves in between one series and the next, and it's always kind of an enjoyable and fun space for us as pastors to find ourselves in, because we kind of get to ask this question, God, you've given me one Sunday outside of these specific defined sermon series, what do you want me to preach and what do you want your people to hear? And so I spent uh, the last week, uh, really two weeks in, in preparation, asking the Lord that. And I came to Genesis chapter 3, and specifically a truth that we find there. And the truth is this, that sin tends to separate us from God twice. Sin tends to separate us from God twice. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We, we know, or at least if you've been a part of the church before, read through scripture, we know that sin, as we enter into it, as we commit it, separates us from the Lord. We're told that sin leads to death. We're told that the Lord our God is righteous and holy, and that as we sin, even as we are born as sinful humanity, we are separated from the perfection of our God because we are not. There is a gap, a chasm that exists between us. This is what we celebrated last week as we walked through the crucifixion, the sacrificial atonement of our Savior Jesus, and the resurrection, his conquering of sin and death. Sin has this, what we might call, legal separation. Our God is holy, and apart from Jesus, we are not. And yet, that separation of sin has been dealt with in Christ Jesus. But there is another way that sin, even on this side of the cross, tends to separate us from our God, even though it need not. You might call this a relational separation that we experience. And let me, let, me, let me talk about it in the context of a story that I heard from a pastor friend of mine. He was counseling a, a young man uh, who had um, really fallen into an ongoing and what felt like to him unbreakable addiction in pornography. 
And he sat down with this pastor, and, and the pastor said to him, I want you to describe to me what is going on in your relationship with yourself in the Lord when you give in to that temptation. And the young man said, well, I know what happens. I know that my eyes and my heart and my mind goes from being on the Lord, and it, it turns inward. There's this, this break between me and the Lord when I give in to temptation, when I sin in this way. And then he said to him, the pastor said to the young man, he said, I want you to describe to me what happens in the days after that sin. And he said, well, it typically takes me about three or four days to get back to the cross. And he said, so for three or four days, your eyes are still not on the Lord, but they're on yourself. For three or four days, you, you beat yourself up. You cover yourself in shame and guilt. You, you kind of hide yourself from the, the presence of the Lord until you feel like enough time has passed where you can go back to him. See, this is what tends to happen after sin. Even though we know theologically that our sins have been forgiven, even though we know theologically that the, the gap that exists between righteous God and sinful humanity has been completely bridged by Jesus, sin and the moments after still tend to separate us from the Lord. We see ourselves as cast off from his presence. We tend to see him as the type of God that withdraws from us when we sin. But the question is, is that actually true? Is that actually where we ought to find ourselves? And is that actually true about our God? See, as the church, we tend to spend a lot of time talking about how we avoid temptation, how we overcome temptation when we face it, how to discipline ourselves and to live a holy life that is free of sin, and that is good and right, and we ought to lean into those things, and yet we don't tend to talk about how we respond when we sin. We don't tend to talk about how we react when we sin, and quite honestly, and more importantly, we don't tend to talk about how the Lord reacts when we stumble and fall. And yet we need to, because when we get this wrong, we give sin a power over us that has already been defeated in Jesus. And so this morning... We're going to look at perhaps the most famous, or, or maybe more appropriately, infamous of sins, and specifically the moments directly after. I want us to look at both the reactions of the Lord and humanity, and we're going to see them in three snapshots here in Genesis chapter 3. The first is the movement of God and humanity after sin, the movement of each after sin. The second is the discussion of each after sin, and the third is the responsibility of each after sin. The movement, the discussion, and the responsibility. 
Let's start with the movement. First, let me give you a little bit of a recap of where we are in Genesis chapter 3. The the story of Genesis is the story of our beginning. It's not the story of all the beginning. It's not the story of our God's beginning. We know that he is timeless. He has existed from eternity past. And yet God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, needing nothing but desiring to share his beauty and glory and love, he creates the world around us. He creates the sun and the stars. He takes what is formless and he gives it form. He he creates the, the, the plants and the trees, the animals, and then as the crown of Creation, he creates humanity, man in woman, in his image. And after every moment of creation, he declares what he creates good. Good, right, perfect. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in creation, are created as royal priests. They are created to rule over this world alongside of their creator, God. And yet, we read at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, how Adam and Eve are tempted. How they go on to doubt God's goodness and then rebel against him and his perfect rule and reign. By denying the one command that the Lord had given them, the one prohibition, and deciding for themselves that they would determine what was best for them. Immediately after, both the man and the woman eat of the fruit of a tree that the Lord God had commanded them not. We read this in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. After they had sinned, Adam and Eve see that they are naked. Now, again, you have to kind of take yourselves out of the context of 2023 and put yourself in the context of Genesis chapter 3. Okay, if you like fell asleep in your seat right now, and then, you know, I said, Amen at the end of the prayer, and you finally, finally woke up after the sermon, and you woke up, your eyes were opened, and you saw that you were naked, right? There would be a lot of running, ducking, hiding for cover, right? No? I'm not getting a lot of nods here, so I'm trying to figure out how much counseling Robert and I have to do after this sermon. You're either already asleep right? But Adam and Eve, this is not a natural reaction. Adam and Eve were created naked, not covered. When the Lord God puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib and he creates Eve and and Adam wakes up and he sees Eve, Adam sings the first cheesy love song ever recorded in scripture to Eve. They're both naked and not ashamed, but instead they see that it is good. 
And so something has already happened that for the first time in all of creation, a part of creation that the Lord God had already declared as good, Adam and Eve see their own bodies, their skin, their form. And they say, this is not good. Something's wrong. Something's off. Something is shameful. Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian that I love, maybe second only to Robert Livingston, uh, he says this about Genesis chapter 3 and the question of why in the world did all of a sudden Adam and Eve find themselves to be naked and that unacceptable? And he postulates, he hypothesizes this, that they were perfectly fine how they were when they were living underneath of the lordship of God. When Adam and Eve were living as creation, those created by God, they were perfectly fine. But when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when they stepped forward and as the serpent tempted them, decided that they could not just be created by God, but they could be little gods, they looked at themselves and for the first time, and rightfully so, found themselves woefully inadequate. Their bodies were perfectly adequate to be the beloved creation of God, but they looked at themselves and found themselves woefully inadequate to be like God. And so we read that they take fig leaves, they sew them together, and they try to cover themselves after they cover themselves, it says this in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 8 gives us two specific movements, one of God and one of humanity. The first begins with God. we hear that the Lord God was walking in the cool of the day, and yet humanity hides themselves. When God approaches Adam and Eve, he's coming towards them, and yet they run from him. Sin itself, when we rebel against God, when we reject him, when we, as Robert said, decide not to depend on him, but believe that we are enough, when we choose creation over the creator, that in and of itself is a movement away from the Lord. And yet, when they hear the Lord God coming, it results in them moving even further away from the Lord. If you have kiddos here, uh, think of what happens when they're young and they get hurt. They, they fall and they, they, they scrape their knee or they, they bump their head. Besides screaming, what's typically the next thing that they do? They run to mom and dad. 
We had one of our kiddos that would just run to us when he, would young, when he was young and he would say nothing other than up, 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 up. It's natural for those who are provided for and protected, for those that have a father or mother, a parent, that when things are bad, where do they run? They run toward them. Uh, 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 about two months ago, Rachel went back home to Illinois where, where my parents and her parents live. Her dad's been sick and battling cancer, and she went back to see him and just to spend some time with him. And this was really the first time. I've traveled a lot for work. Rachel has not, mainly just out of grace and mercy to me, knowing it is a 50-50 proposition that me and all five of our children like make it. If she travels. So Rachel, being kind, uh, she, she took our youngest and left me with the other four. And, and I thought things went well. I thought, man, I just, I mean, this has been a great week. The kids have had a ton of fun. Everybody is still breathing. Um, there have only been a few tears from me during this week. And, and, and so I thought things went pretty well. And then Rachel got home after being gone for a week. And it was like Rachel just saved our children from the apocalypse. There were like tears and like smiles, like, thank you that you're home, mom. Like ran to her at the door. And I thought, okay, clearly my children need my wife. But that's that's a good reaction, right? She felt well-loved and needed. In that moment, I had to question my parenting skills, but she felt well-loved. It's natural that we would move towards those that we love, especially when we feel a deficiency or a lacking. But that's not what Adam and Eve do, and it's not what we tend to do when we fall in sin. Our fleshly reaction is not to run towards the Lord. That he might pick us up and care for us in our need, but we tend to run away from the Lord. We take our wounds away from the only one who can heal them, and we hide. You know, there is is something shocking in this verse that when the Lord God was walking in the cool of the day, the man and the wife heard him. And hid themselves from his presence. I don't know how much time exactly has elapsed from Adam and Eve's creation in the garden to this moment. But you can imagine that every other time the Lord God came walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Whatever that looked like. Every other time Adam and Eve's response was, oh, he's coming. I can't wait to see him, to be with him, to talk with him, to spend time with him. It would have been the height of celebration because even though everything was perfection in the garden, all of that perfection only pointed to the true perfection, the height of joy and beauty and love, which is God our creator. And yet for the first time, the sound of him makes Adam and Eve hide 
It makes them feel shame and fear and guilt. Sin and after sin tends to lead humanity away from God. But what does the movement of our God look like? Well, he moves towards them. The Lord comes toward Adam and Eve. The Lord does not draw back. He does not immediately remove himself from Adam and Eve, even though he knows that they have sinned. He knows all things. And yet, knowing that they have sinned, he does not cut them off immediately. Even now, God is showing his character to humanity that will play out across the pages of Scripture and of all time. How does our God move? He moves towards sinful humanity. Maybe another way to say it is, as children of God, we don't even need to run toward him when we are hurting because he comes to us. Ask yourself this question, maybe. Think for just a moment. Where is the Lord in your life right now? What is he doing in your life right now? And I don't know the specific answer, but here is the answer. He is always moving closer towards you. Always moving towards you. And that's not something we just see here once in Genesis 3. It's the entire story, the entire arc of Scripture. After the fall and Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because of their sin. When Cain is about to sin against Abel, guess what the Lord God does? He comes to him. When humanity has rejected utterly to the utmost God, and has turned their way towards sin, what does he do? He comes towards Noah. After the great flood, when God decides that he is going to begin the story of redemption and a family that would one day birth the Savior, what does he do? He comes to Abraham. When Egypt is in exile, he hears their cries and he comes to them. And then he leads them. He goes with them, and he leads them out of slavery and bondage. He leads them into the promised land where he promises to dwell amongst them. Even after they reject him and they are sent off into captivity, he comes and he rescues them again, and he brings them back again. It's a drumbeat of all of Scripture. He's coming. He's coming to us. He's coming again. He moves towards sinful humanity, and he doesn't have to. The Lord God had said to Adam and Eve, what would happen if they ate of the tree? They would surely die. The Lord God didn't need to be present to mete out that punishment. He could have simply said, enough. They're gone. I need have nothing more to do with them, and yet he moves towards them. And of course, this grand story sees its climax in the coming of God in human flesh, Christ Jesus, our Savior. The gospel writer John tells us that he came 
to his people, even though his people would reject him. Jesus himself says that he came to seek out and save the lost. John 3.17 says that Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to he came to reconcile. Jesus himself says that he is the good shepherd and that when even one goes astray, he leaves the 99 in order to go to them. This is the movement of God. After our sin, he comes for us. Immediately after their sin, we see how humanity moves. They move away from the Lord, and we see how the Lord moves. He moves towards them. Next, we hear the discussion that takes place between humanity and our God. Now, I want you to listen close to the words of God and the words of humanity. Scripture tells us that the words that come out of our mouth reveal the posture of our heart. Gosh, that's convicting even as I say it. (laughs) The words that come out of our mouth reveal what's going on in our heart. The Lord speaks first in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, you must remember, we must keep in mind that the Lord God is omniscient. He knows all things. And so when he comes to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? He's not asking for a little help. He's not confused or disoriented in the garden. Their fig leaves and hiding behind some branches somewhere didn't confuse God. He's not lacking information or insight, which means he's not asking the question for himself. He's asking the question for the sake of Adam and Eve. Where are you? He asks. And also, can can I just, as an aside, point this out? Do you notice what the first question is not? It's not, what did you do? It's not, why did you do that? If we're just being honest with ourselves, if you're kind of writing this same story in your head, don't don't you think that would be the first question out of the Lord's mouth? And maybe it's just me confessing that I know I tend to see the Lord wrong. I tend to see his love and his care and concern through the lens of, My broken love for people. But sin that is going to fracture the world has just happened. And the Lord God shows up and his first question is not, what did you do? 
And it wasn't, why did you do that? His first question is, where are you? So what is he asking here? Where are you? Well, I think there's a couple answers, and I think the Lord intends for Adam to answer the question in all of these ways. Where are you? The first answer for Adam and Eve is, they're not dead yet. They're still here. They're still breathing. They're still in the garden. Even though they have broken the command that the Lord God has given to them, they're still there. The first breath that they took after eating that fruit was a gracious gift from the Lord. Where are you? Well, the first answer is, I'm, I'm here. I can hear the question. My lungs are expanding. My heart is beating. I'm still here. Second, where are you? I'm still in your presence, God. I heard you walking. I can hear you talking. Even after my sin, I'm still before you. But then the, the third answer is a revelation not of what the Lord God has done, but reveals what they have done. The answer is also I'm hiding. That's where I am. The, the Lord God comes to sinners and he doesn't jump immediately into passing judgment. He doesn't hand out justice. And, and that will occur. It must occur for him to be righteous. But that's not where he jumps into first. First, he cares for sinful humanity. He reveals to them something terrible has happened. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see that you are hiding from me, that you are pulling away from me, that you are moving further from me? And do you see where I am coming to you? The Lord speaks and then Adam responds. Notice his response. The Lord God says, where are you? And Adam says... We heard you coming, and we were afraid. You know, I've, I've read that sentence a number of times, and, uh, and my response is something I remember as a kid. There were a couple times where we lived in a, a two-story house, and uh, one specifically, I had come home, I think I had shared this story, and I was uh, acting, let's say, irresponsible on the bus. I think that's a good way to put it. I feel good about that. Anyways, as I was getting off the bus, the bus driver looked at me, and she said, hold on. And she got a piece of paper, and she wrote some things on it, and I'm like, uh-oh. And she hands it to me, and the paper says, you are not allowed to ride the bus tomorrow. And I was like, Whoa. So I was immediately like, aha, only my mom is home right now. Let me get home quickly. We will resolve this matter. We can put it behind us and move forward. So I get home and I say, Mom, there was some sort of terrible misunderstanding on the bus. Uh, I'm not sure what it was, but I somehow ended up with this piece of paper. Um, and so let's just agree that you'll take me tomorrow and be done with it. And my mom said the words that uh, 
I did not want to hear, which was, wait till your father comes home. And I was like, we don't need to do that. There's no reason to do that, Mom. Dad is a hard worker. He provides for our family. We need to burden him with this. Um, But she did need to burden him with this, apparently. So she said, go up to your room and wait till your dad gets home. And uh, I knew what time my dad went home, so I went upstairs, and uh, I literally like laid down on the floor on the carpeting and was just like, this is going to end badly. And then I heard the door like unlock, and to me, it sounded like my dad like kicked down the door and then walked up the steps, and it was just like... That's what I imagined the Lord sounded like when I read that verse, right? Adam's like, gosh, God, we heard you stomping in the garden. And we could tell you were ticked. And so we hid. But that's not what Adam says. Adam doesn't say, and I think it's clear that that the Lord God came in anger. They weren't scared because the Lord was angry or mean or unkind. Why were they scared? Because they were naked and they needed to hide from the Lord. The Lord came in grace and mercy, and we will see it clearly here in just a moment, but they hid. And the Lord God asks him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now the Lord God offers Adam and Eve the gift of confession. Let me say that again. Now the Lord God offers Adam and Eve the gift of confession. Confession is a grace of the Lord. Sin separates us. Confession is the opportunity to take that sin into the light, into the presence of God, and ask him, please heal what I have broken. Fix it, please, God. This is a gift of the Lord because when confession doesn't occur, the fracture of our sin doesn't slowly heal. It gets worse. The the, the summer before uh, I was leaving uh, for college, I was uh, playing in a a pickup football game. I was was going to play uh, college at this really big university I was going to play football there. Uh, it was uh, there's 700 students at the college, which is smaller than all the high schools around here. Uh, but I was playing a, a game of pickup football, and I went up for a ball and got tangled up with someone, and my my shoulder dislocated. And so a buddy of mine who couldn't stop himself from laughing also came back over towards me and popped my shoulder back in. And and I knew like man something something is not right. Uh, like a, a week later, we were at a pool, and I went to dive in to the pool, and the you know that terribly hard uh, water <laughs> when I dove made my shoulder come back out of socket, and I was like, you know what? I'm just I'm not going to go see a doctor because the doctor is going to say that something is messed up, and I'm not going to be able to play this fall, and I don't want that to happen. And so I just dealt with it as best I could, and it got to the point where when I would go to sleep at night. I would, I would fall asleep on my back, and if I put my arm up like this, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and my shoulder would be out of socket. And, and that is a terrifying thing. When you are in a dorm room with no one around, 
and your shoulder slips out of socket when you are sleeping. Right? It didn't get better. It got worse and worse and worse until I finally went to the doctor and the doctor said, and I quote, you need to have surgery now. If you would have come in earlier, you might have avoided it. But this is our thought process when it comes to sin. I've sinned. Let me bury that deep, and with enough time, it'll get better. But if you walk around on fractured legs, they don't get better. They get worse. And so the Lord God offers us the gift of confession. And he doesn't just offer us the gift of confession. He tries to draw us into confession. That's what he's doing with Adam and Eve. He says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to? David, in Psalm 32, after sleeping with Bathsheba and killing her husband, he says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave, you redeemed, you healed the iniquity of my sin. There's this stuff called epicac. You guys ever heard of that before? No, that's because everybody like takes like activated charcoal now when you eat something bad. But it was here's right. You 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 have kids. They're mischievous and they will eat or drink things that are not edible or drinkable. And so someone who was just not a very nice person, but maybe a brilliant chemist came up with this thing, and they're like, hey, this thing won't kill you, but it will make you vomit. And so there was this stuff that you could go to the pharmacy and get and have at your house so that if your kid ate or drank something that wasn't good, you could take that and go, hey, you just drank or ate something strange. Eat or drink this other thing that's also strange. It will make you vomit, and we'll get the poison up. It's not a very comfortable process. But it's a lot more comfortable than allowing yourself to digest something that will kill you. Confession is the opportunity for us to get up and out that which seeks to kill us. But what does Adam and Eve do? Do they take the Lord up on his gracious gift of confession? No. I love it. Adam doesn't even answer his question. The Lord God says to him, did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to? And what does Adam say? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, God, she gave me fruit of the tree. And then he finally answers, and I ate. The Lord turns to Eve and he says, what is it that you have done? And the woman says, the the serpent deceived me. And then I ate. The Lord God invites Adam and Eve to bring their sin into the light. But he and Eve, they deflect and they blame rather than accept the Lord's invitation. 
Now, let's talk about nature versus nurture for a second, okay? Uh, Nature means that something is is inherent, innate to us. Nurture means that something is is learned, right? Uh, My favorite example when someone, well, I won't, ask me later. It's a story that goes off the rails and gets people uh, a little upset, so I'll, I'll leave that. Nature versus nurture. Sometimes, listen, what comes out of your mouth reveals the posture of your heart. So here's what happens. You might say, listen, the reason that we don't confess is that we've learned that when we don't confess, we, we, we reap negative consequences or we, we have to confess to people who then use that confession over us and they, they make our life miserable and they make us feel guilty and shameful. And so the reason that we don't confess is that we've learned it's not safe to. And let me tell you that this is proof positive that with sin comes the desire not to confess. Because the Lord God has never been anything but good, gracious, and kind to Adam and Eve. And yet, immediately, the first time they sin, they are given the opportunity to confess and they say, nope. Not my fault. I didn't do it, God. It wasn't my fault. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. She made me do it. And you know, as a matter of fact, you gave me to her, so technically, you did it, is what Adam says. Right? And then Eve's like, there was a talking snake. Definitely not my fault. Somehow, it is natural in the midst of sin to hide, to lie, to excuse to blame and deflect. Which means when we get to gather together and confess together, it's not natural, it's supernatural. It is a gift that the Lord God gives us, the gift of faith to believe that though sin would try and separate us and lead us into darkness and hiding, that the gospel gives us power to step into the light with our sin and say to the Lord, I have sinned. I trust that you will be gracious and merciful with me because of Jesus. The words of the Lord reveal that he cares for us. That his heart is towards us, even in our sin. That he is seeking restoration and redemption. But the words of Adam and Eve reveal that in sin, we turn inward. We blame, deflect, feel like we need to care for ourselves rather than coming out into the light. So that's the movement and the discussion. And let's end on the responsibility after sin. So what is the ultimate results of the sin that has been committed? Perhaps you think you you know this story and that now, with the pronouncement of the curse, we will find that the weight and responsibility falls squarely on humanity. But look closer. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely 
Multiply your pain and chain, uh, childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then the Lord God says this, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Yes, the results of this sin are terrifying. They fracture the peace and perfection of the world. We still experience its impacts today. But did you notice that as the Lord God is describing the impacts of their sin, that nowhere does the Lord God ask humanity to fix it? He does not tell them, you have done this and you must fix this. You have broken this and you must put this back together. You have separated yourself from me and you must find a way back. No. Instead, he tells them that they must bear these results until someone else fixes it. And then he gives us a hint of exactly who that is. Look again at verse 14. The Lord God begins to condemn the serpent. And as he is doing so, he says, following in verse 15, I will put enmity, strife between you and the woman, between your offspring, literally your seed and hers. Until one day, God says, that one born of a woman would once again come into conflict with the serpent. And the serpent, we are told, will bruise, or literally that Hebrew word is to gash or to gape open, the heel of the man. But the man will gash, will crush the head of the serpent. This is the first promise of the gospel, that where Adam and Eve failed when they came face to face with the serpent, that one day one would come who would not fail, but would defeat our enemy, and by God's grace would redeem that which we have broken. Do you see this? Moments after sin, the Lord God is already promising the gospel. Jesus doesn't show up like an ambulance after the scene has gotten so bad that someone's got to call for help. The same chapter as the first sin. As a matter of fact, before he even speaks the curse over man and woman and how they will feel the impacts of their sin, before that, the Lord God promises the gospel. 
And if we or Adam and Eve are not quite sure who this serpent slayer, this redeemer, this eventual champion will be, God gives us another clue as he is sending Adam and Eve out of the garden. It says in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord, he takes the fig leaves that haven't been able to cover Adam and Eve's shame. That they tried to cover up themselves with. He takes those away and he covers them. He clothes them through the death of another. Even as man and woman are preparing to taste the result of their sin, even as they are being removed from the garden, God is already providing for them and telling them. He is still their provider. He is still their protector. He still covers them and he will redeem them. This is not an angry, dismissive God getting ready to get rid of creation and start anew. This is a God that for whatever reason, too big and grand and beautiful for us to comprehend, has given himself to creation so wholly and fully that even as we rebel against him, he is promising and preparing to give of himself to restore us back to his presence. Listen, last Sunday we celebrated the consummation of the Lord's promise, our restoration back into his presence. We celebrated that Jesus has come, that he has defeated our enemy, that where we failed in the garden, he did not, and that he has utterly atoned for our sin. We, unlike Adam and Eve, will never again be removed from the presence of God. We will never be cast out. Our sin has no power to separate us from God. And even when now we do fail, our God still moves towards us. He still cares for us and he still bears the weight of that sin. So if that is the case, when we stumble, when we fall, Why would we ever again buy into the lie of sin? That we must hide from him. That we must remove ourselves from him. That we cannot be honest with him and come to him with our neediness and simply ask of our Father, will you heal what I have broken? Because scripture says that he has. And he will. And so there is no reason for us ever to be separated from him again. Let's pray.